Romans chapter 12, and we'll be reading just verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of service. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking at called to worship, which really, in one sense, is, is an umbrella term for everything that we're called to do uh, as uh, Christians. So it's a sort of a, a fitting way to start uh, our series. Let me pray again as we come to the Lord's Word, and we'll look at these wonderful words together. So, Heavenly Father, we do pray as we gather as your people around your Word. We pray you'd open your Word uh, to our hearts and minds and that you'd open our hearts and minds to your word. I pray you'd help us to uh, worship you now by uh, being uh, or seeking to be shaped by you through your word to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The heart of worship is self-surrender. It is the offering of oneself to something or someone. And everybody does it. Everybody worships. That is to say, everybody's life revolves around something or someone. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, who was a writer, he was described as the most intensely admired figure to emerge from his generation of American writers, died a few years ago, uh, a young man. And the Guardian newspaper published a speech he'd given at a a university graduation. Uh, He's not a Christian, as far as I know. Uh, But what he said was very striking. And he said this to this uh, group of uh, young graduates in front of him. He said, uh, quote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. And the Bible says that is because we were made to worship, to seek purpose and meaning, self-worth and significance. But, the Bible says, sin in our hearts leads us to worship by nature, the wrong things. It leads us to worship, the Bible puts it like this, created things rather than our life-giving creator. So Paul, a little bit earlier, we won't turn to it, but in chapter 1, verse 25 of Romans, he says this, they, that is humanity by nature, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Such turning away from God is both offensive to Him as our Maker, but also destructive to us. 
Because created things will always disappoint. The created can never replace the Creator. It will always leave us disappointed, damaged, and the Bible says spiritually dead. God is the only true satisfier of man's souls. Human beings were created with a soul thirst for God, and nothing but God can satisfy that thirst. David Foster Wallace continued in his speech. He went on to say this, very striking. Quote, If you worship money or things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. And he went on. Very striking. God calls us to worship him. And he calls us to worship him not because he is some sort of cosmic, selfish tyrant, but because he is our true sovereign and a saviour. Only he deserves such submission, and only he can truly satisfy. And Paul makes three points that I want to pick up this morning about worship in these uh, very striking verses from uh, his book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the first point he makes is this, verse 1. Worship is always a response to the mercy of God, or I should say Christian worship is always a response to the mercy of God. Did you see that there? Therefore, says Paul, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as sacrifices. Worship is always a response to the mercy of God. God's mercy is always the motivation for our worship. His grace is the ground out of which Worship grows. Christian worship is not offered to gain his approval. It is always a gift of gratitude. It's not expressed to earn new life, but it is itself an expression of our new life that Christ has won for us. That's the point of the therefore in verse 1. Do you see? The therefore takes us back to what Paul has been saying so far in his letter. And what he has been saying so far in his letter is, essentially, he's been giving us the gospel, the good news of Christianity. He's been explaining how, yes, humanity by nature is spiritually dead, enslaved to this thing the Bible calls sin, this attitude of heart and mind that wants to reject God and put ourselves at the center of our lives. It leads us to serving created things rather than the life-giving creator. Leads us to a, a, a destiny of eternal death. But in his mercy, in his grace, Jesus has come into the world to rescue people from their sins by dying once for all time as the acceptable sacrifice for sin. 
His death pays the penalty for sin, frees us from the power of sin, allows us to be forgiven, brought back into friendship with God, filled with his life-renewing spirit, and freed now in response to live a life for him, as we were created to do. In other words, to worship him. God, in his mercy, liberates us from enslaving, unsatisfying, false worship of created things and enables and empowers and enthuses liberating, fulfilling, true worship of God. Uh, Tim Keller is an American uh, pastor. I don't think I've quoted this uh, to you before. Um, but he made this point, which I thought was very helpful. He said this, quote, Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, saw us enslaved by the very things we thought would free us. So he emptied himself of his glory and became a servant. He laid aside the infinities and immensities of his being and at the cost of his life paid the debt for our sins, purchasing us the only place our hearts can rest. Why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like this? That's the point, isn't it? Why wouldn't you want to offer yourself to someone like this, to someone like Jesus Christ? The motivation for surrendering ourselves to God is remembering his goodness to us, displayed in the sending of his Son. We are enabled and enthused to surrender to God because he first surrendered himself to death on our behalf. We are enabled and enthused to serve him because he first served us, to love him because he first loved us, to lay down our lives in worship for him because he first laid down his life for us. Christian worship is always a response to the mercy of God. And furthermore, when we give our lives to God in worship, we find our lives. It's a great point that um, John Piper, again another American pastor, often makes in his writings. And uh, he once wrote this, we were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And when we trade that treasure for images, everything is disordered. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Well, because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. You see his point? It is one of the great paradoxes, if you like, of the Christian life that true freedom is found in submission to a greater splendor than ourselves. God calls us to the liberating, 
life-giving worship of himself. His mercy makes such worship possible, and his mercy is what motivates it. So Christian worship is always a response to the mercy of God, first half of chapter 1. Secondly, second half, sorry, first half of verse 1, second half of verse 1, Christian worship reaches into every moment of life. Did you see that there? Offer your bodies as sacrifices, living, holy, and pleasing to God. That's the word order in the Greek. This is your spiritual act of worship. Christian worship does not involve bringing sacrifices of blood before the Lord, since Jesus was the full and final sacrifice for sin. But rather, do you see, Paul says, we have been freed to bring the sacrifices not of blood, but of our very bodies. The word translated bodies here refers not so much to uh, flesh and blood, rather it refers to our um, sort of whole self. It refers to the entire person, particularly in its focus with its interaction with the world. So Christian worship involves offering or surrendering every part of ourselves in every part of our lives. It is living. That is to say that Christian worship is not part of life, it is all of life. It is holy, which is to say that it is a life sort of set apart from the pattern of this world and shaped instead by God. And it is therefore a life that is pleasing to him. As one person once put it, God wants more than gifts. He wants the giver. Christian worship is being satisfied by God and seeking his will in every sphere of life and surrendering to it as we allow him to shape us. It is delighting God by being delighted in him and doing his will in every moment of life. Christian worship is to express itself in our everyday relationships and responsibilities. Uh, An early church father, Chrysostom, uh, put it like this. He said, how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? Well, let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a burnt offering. Worship is meant to be 24-7, a way of life as we glorify God by allowing him to shape the whole of our lives. I want to work through a few Uh, sort of applications of this in three or four areas of life. So let's start with our work life. The realm of work is the realm of worship as we allow God to shape our conduct and our priorities. We worship God when we are transparent, filling in our tax form. We worship him when we refuse to go with the flow of gossip and backbiting. We worship God when we include him in our decision-making. For instance, when we're thinking about a promotion that we might have been offered. We glorify God when we don't just jump for the higher salary and the higher status in the office, but 
we pause and we consider what the impact of such a promotion might have on us spiritually. When we pause and we ask, well, how does this fit with God's priorities for my life? Will it mean that I can still discharge my God-given responsibilities to my spouse, to my family? What impact will it have on my God-given church responsibilities? Will I or others suffer spiritually because this promotion will mean that I'm increasingly drawn away to work? Will this promotion mean moving to a place where there's no Bible-teaching church? What impact will that have on me and my family spiritually? Those sorts of questions taken seriously, thought through, talked through with Christian friends, they're expressions of true worship because they're putting God and his will for our lives at the center of our life rather than me and my initial instincts. Worship is seeking God's will and surrendering to it. Think about what this might mean in our social life, going to the pub, great opportunity to glorify God as we refuse to conform to peer pressure, but rather we praise God with our Christian conduct. The moment we decline another pint, say, and we order the soft drink because we know we've reached our limit, that is a moment of pure worship. We have in that moment surrendered ourselves to God and his moral will for us. God is delighted by that. The moment we refuse to join in with coarse language or coarse joking, that is a moment of pure worship. The moment we choose not to watch a particular film because we think that its content might be spiritually or morally harmful to us, that is a moment of pure worship. Think about our home life. We worship God as we seek his wisdom at home. When we ask questions such as, well, what does a God-shaped marriage look like? What does God-shaped singleness look like? What does God-shaped parenting look like? When we make the decision to read Christian books or come to various courses that the church and other things lay on about sort of Christian marriage, parenting, that sort of thing, when we discuss these issues with Christian friends, again, we're expressing worship because we're wanting to put him and his revealed will for us at the center of our home life. We are seeking to make every aspect of our home life an expression of worship as we surrender it to God's will. So uh, work life, social life, home life, all realms of worship, as is, of course, our church life. We praise God as we allow him to shape us in the practical aspects of everyday life. We also, of course, worship God in a significant way when we gather together on a Sunday to meet for what we might call corporate worship. And that is because when we gather uh, as God's people, uh, we do things that we can't do, we don't do during uh, the working week, as it it were. Things which build us up uh, so that we can worship in the rest of our week. We put ourselves on a Sunday on the receiving end of God's word and on the receiving end of uh, each other's God-given gifts. Let me say a few things about that in particular. First, worship is attending. We can't be shaped by God and we cannot be encouraged and we cannot encourage others and serve others with our God-given gifts if we don't turn up. Turning up to church on a Sunday is an act of worship. Singing 
is an act of worship. As we express our faith to God and, of course, to each other. There's a lot in the New Testament about that. Part of the purpose of singing is to build each other up as we express our faith to one another. Worship is listening as we still our minds and we strive to concentrate. It's an act of worship when we listen to the sermon. Because we're saying, I want you, God, to address me and change me through your word. So I'm going to try and concentrate. Worship is serving. It's serving others with the gifts God has given us. And there's lots more we could say. But that is worship here as part of our church life. Our Sunday worship is very significant. But we do need to be careful that we don't see it as more significant, if you will, than our worship in the rest of the week. We worship when we sing songs. We worship when we listen to the sermon. We worship when we serve each other. And we worship when we serve our God and are shaped by him in the other 167 hours of our week. This, says Paul, is our spiritual act of worship. By which he doesn't mean, of course, by spiritual, he doesn't mean worship that has nothing to do with your bodies, because Paul has just said it is to do with your bodies. In fact, the word translated here is the Greek word logikos. And... Um, from which we get the word, of course, logic. And it, it's probably better translated rational, rational or reasonable or true. It, it has the sense of fitting in the light of what, uh, who God is and what he has done for us and what his will is for us as his rescued children. So it's worship in the light of that. So although worship very importantly, involves and expresses our emotions, it doesn't begin there. Worship, says Paul, is rooted in a transformed mind. And very briefly, that's his point in verse 2. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but, and the sense of the verbs in the Greek goes like this, but continue to be transformed by the ongoing renewal of your mind. So worship involves resisting the ways of this world in favor of the will of God. Paul, again, back in chapter 1, he explains that humanity's rejection of God has resulted in darkened minds, minds unfit for purpose. God gave us our minds to perceive his glory, to process his word such that we can put it into practice. But sin, says Paul, kind of ruins the mind. It makes it a place that perversely runs from the life-giving God and rejects his good word and will. But Paul has been explaining that when God rescues us, when we turn to him in faith, he gives us his spirit and his spirit renews our minds such that we can again perceive God's glory. We can delight in him. Our minds can understand his word and his will and desire to put it into practice. If worship is delighting in God and doing his will, then clearly we need to know who God is what he's done for us, what he's doing in us, and what his will is in every area of our lives. Our minds need renewing by his spirit, refilling with his word. You know, the Bible says time and time again that the programming of our minds leads to the pattern of our lives. The programming of our minds leads to the pattern of our lives. In other words, what you take in is what you work out in life. 
Uh, one writer, R. Kent Hughes, said this. He said, you can never have a Christian mind without reading the scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. Isn't that a simple point, isn't it? But it's, it's such a striking one. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. If you are filled with God's word, your life can then be informed and directed by God. Your domestic relationships, your child rearing, your career, your ethical decisions, your interior moral life. Worship involves working the word of God into every area of life so that we can live it out in every area of life. Then, says Paul, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. As we allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds and God's word that reveals his will. And that's why we want to be a church saturated by the word of God and in step with the spirit of God. Because that will lead to the true worship of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these words from the Apostle Paul. We commit ourselves to you. We want to be a, a people who surrender themselves to you in worship, to you and your good and perfect will for us. We want to do that knowing that uh, in worshiping you, uh, we find life in submission to you. We find perfect freedom. Help us to to remember and to glory in what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. May our worship always be a response to him. May our life laid down always be a response to his life laid down for us. And help us to think uh, and to learn more about you and your will for us, such that in the power of your Spirit, we might put that will into practice in every area of our lives. Help us to give ourselves to you for your greater glory and our good. Amen.